We're in chapter 20, as our boss said in his emails, so we know where to start. Uh, let's just orient ourselves again a little bit. Um, we're at the end, about to begin to look at the end of Paul's third missionary journey. And uh, as Luke has done uh, in this particular section, he's not giving us a great amount of detail like he did with the first missionary journey and the second missionary journey. He's highlighting very specific things. And so um, if, as Woody had said uh, uh, earlier in his question, in this first paragraph from chapter uh, 20, if you want to follow the map, <laughs> I mean, you can. Um, the, uh, the one for right now, probably page 9, is, is the, best, uh, the best to use. A little bit later, we'll go to the one on page 11. But if, you, if you're not, I'm just going to read the place names, highlight a few things, because what I really want to do is get to uh, verse 7. <clears throat> um, after the uproar ceased, now the uproar, we had studied that last week, was what occurred in Ephesus. And we, I developed that whole chapter around the reality of spiritual warfare, where the kingdom of God is invading the kingdom of Satan. A kingdom of darkness, whatever label you want to give it. And it did create an incredible stir because it meant that everything that was important about Ephesus in A.D. 50, approximately A.D. 55, 56, was coming unglued. And the political and religious leaders were uh, attesting to that. So after the uproar ceased in Ephesus, Paul sent the disciples for the disciples and they encouraged them then. He said farewell and departed from Macedonia. So he's going from Ephesus across the Aegean Sea to Macedonia. And that's just, again, if you want to follow that. When he had gone through those regions and given them such encouragement, he came to Greece. And as you'll see in a minute, specifically to Corinth. He's going to go to Corinth. And he would be there for three months. And when a plot was made against him by the Jews, he was about to set sail for Syria. He decided to return to Macedonia. So he goes from Corinth back up through Macedonia. Again, just following on the map if you're interested. And we have a number of individuals named here. So Peter, the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him. And of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus, Secundus, Gaius of Derby, and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. Now, of all those names, you probably recognize Timothy because he is one of Paul's spiritual disciples and he will write two letters to him. <clears throat> Timothy will give the assignment of being the leader of the Ephesian church after Paul's arrested and uh, things begin to unravel for him. And the other one you might notice, I don't know if you recognize that, but Tychicus, he will, be, he will carry two of Paul's letters. And we, we're not going to study that. But he will carry two of uh, Paul's letters that he writes from prison when he's in Rome. Then he went ahead, I'm in verse 5, and we're waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi, and after the days of unleavened bread in five days... We came to them at Troas, and we stayed there for seven days. Now, you can see he's just going back and forth across the Aegean Sea. But now he's in Troas. Again, if you're following in the map, that's on the northeastern corner of Anatolia. What today would be Turkey, and our northwestern corner of Turkey. 
All right, now the geography's over. You don't have any questions about that, do you? <laughs> uh, is this the third trip? This is, yeah, he's nearing the end of his third missionary journey. Mm -hmm. Now, in the first day of the week, which means Sunday, which means this is when the church began to meet for worship. That is an enormous shift, and this is just a you know, minor detail, but I thought I'd take a moment to, to notice that with you. Uh, as the church begins to organize, they begin to meet for worship on the first day of the week. What day is that? Sunday. Sunday. So you start to see a very significant cleavage developing between the Jews and the early church. Because the Jews still observe Sabbath, which is sundown Friday to sundown Saturday, Whereas the church, and that's when they would meet and worship and, and all that, the church now begins to meet on Sunday. Do you, do you have any idea of why they would have chosen to meet on Sunday and not the Sabbath? Because of the resurrection. I mean, we don't have an explicit directive in the Bible on that, but it just seems reasonable. They choose to meet for worship on the first day of the week, Sunday, as a celebration of the resurrection, because, as you know, Easter Sunday is <laughs> the most important day for us as Christians because that's resurrection. Yeah, right. Question on Saturday today, that's when Jewish people often worship, right? Is that true? And that's their Sabbath, right. Mm -hmm. Is that true then? Yeah. At this point here? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So you wouldn't think they would want to be on that same day necessarily. Well, actually, uh, and I mean, I, I know why you're saying that, but it is, we do know in the very early church, like after Pentecost and so on, they are meeting on Saturdays. They're meeting for worship. I mean, because they're Jewish. They've just came out of Judaism. But as, and there's no, it's impossible to get a date on this, but it, it, very early, so we're in the mid-50s here, very early, that tradition of meeting on Sunday is starting. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 16 says, when you gather for worship on the first day of the week. So, I mean, that's clear. By then, it's pretty well established that the churches are meeting for worship on Sunday. I didn't want to make a big deal of that, but I wanted you to see. And notice, when we gather together to break bread. Now, more than likely... That is a reference to two facets of the same event. Almost always in the early church, and especially in the first century, but even into the second century, they would basically gather in a house, because these are house churches, there aren't buildings yet, that comes a bit later. But anyway, they would meet in house churches, and they would basically spend most of the day together. And the morning would be a time of, of reading from the scriptures, which usually was quite a long time, 60 to 90 minutes. Why would they spend so much time reading scripture? Because very few people had their own copies of scripture. It was very expensive because everything's hand copied. So, I mean, just I don't know if you're interested in this, but I thought I'd take a moment to share it. Then after the extensive reading of scripture and singing of hymns, Almost all of them would have been without instruments, although some did use instruments. Then there would be what you and I would call a sermon or a, a devotional message on what some of the scriptures had been read. And then they would gather for a meal. And they became this became known as the agape meal or the love feast. And at the end of that, they would, they would break bread together. They would have communion together. 
And then there would be a, another break, and then they would, would have some additional reading of Scripture and, and some uh, speaking, preaching, and then they would uh, depart. But they're spending a chunk of that, maybe six hours, give or take a little bit together. And uh, it, so this breaking of bread is not just, you know, they're having lunch together. I mean, this is a very significant discipline that the early church developed of gathering together on the first day of the week for a good part of the day. <laughs> How would you like to do that on Sundays now? We are uncomfortable in our... When I'm preaching and I go past 40 minutes, everybody's looking at their watch and shutting their Bibles and getting up to go to the restroom. I'm clearly getting the body language. Stop talking, Ekman. And I'm being a little facetious. But, I mean, it's just... That was, again, that was part of the culture, and, and that, was, that was okay. But so this is a significant statement when it says they're breaking bread. Paul talked with them, intending to depart the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. <laughs> Would you sit and listen to me preach for four hours? I don't think so. But Paul, that's what, so that's just an extraordinary statement. But you know, I've been in third world countries. When I was in Ecuador among the Quechuas uh, a number of years ago, and they didn't want me to preach 40 minutes. Their expectation was at least three hours. That was their expectation. At least three. You're going to speak at least three hours, aren't you? Then we'll take a break. Wow. I mean, that's, you know, that's, for even me, as much as I love to preach and teach, that was a remarkable, you are going to speak more than 30, 40 minutes, aren't you? Three hours? And I said, Okay, it was just really, it's part of um, when people, when a, that church, and the Kichua church is a young church. In 1960, there were no churches among the Kichua Indians. Now there are 450 churches. And I mean, so and the gospel has just exploded across that uh, region of Ecuador and the mountains there. Well, anyway, so, I mean, this is just, this isn't an unusual thing necessarily, but to go till midnight, that's unusual. There were many lamps in the upper room where we gathered, and the young man, the Greek word is nanios, he's about between 8 and 14 years old. So he is young. This isn't a man, this is a young boy or a young teenager. Named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him, taking him in his arms, said, Do not be alarmed for his life. And the Greek word there that's translated life is psuche. Often translate that soul is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long time until daybreak, and so departed. And they took the young men away alive and were not a little comforted. That's, that's a figure of speech, meaning they really were comforted. Um, why do you think this is an important miracle to talk about? What kind of authority? Okay, apostolic authority is representative of God. Uh, would you regard this as a messianic miracle? 
Remember, we've talked about a messianic miracle. Please say yes to that. Yes. Okay, good. I mean, it is. It's a messianic miracle. It is only the authority and power of Jesus Christ working through Paul that restores life like this, brings life back, resurrection. Re- maybe resuscitation is a better word because, I mean, obviously he's going to die again uh, as an older mm-hmm. age. So this is an extraordinary demonstration, and it's short. I mean, this is, you know, 7 through 12, bang, 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 it's over. But it's a short, pithy reminder of the power of God that is manifested in and through Paul in a pagan city. Troas, which, remember, that this is where they are, they're in Troas. Troas is not known as a strong church city at this time. And so it's, it's establishing messianic authority, the power of God manifested through Paul, and we have to believe that this would have an impact on that community. Because the words that are preached are validated by the works that match it in this Messianic period. It's one of those uh, extraordinary miracles. It just, it's bang, it's here, it's over, and you're moving on. There's no long reflection on it. There's no long detailed uh, impact and results. It's just bang, it happens. But Paul, with apostolic authority, representing Jesus as Messiah, restores life to a young boy that fell asleep. I find that amazing because I would think it would be an older person that would have fallen asleep. You know? I have trouble staying up till 10 o'clock at night now. I used to stay up till midnight, then I had trouble. I start reading at night by 10 o'clock. I mean, I'm falling asleep, so I, I'm, I'm old now, Jim. Do I recall you saying last week or one of the previous weeks that this... This kind of apostolic authority mm-hmm. passed when uh, when they were no longer when they were no longer living, or and we don't have it today. Is that what I understood you saying? Yes. Thank you. <laughs> I, I'm sure you've got something more you want to say. I'm sure you want to go there. That's right. Somebody <laughs> <laughs> yes. The uniqueness of apostolic authority is is documented in the words of Jesus. And this is how he said, you are going to function, and this is what I want you to do. And uh, that's why I think, I'm not going to go much farther down this bunny trail, but that's why I think the office of apostle is not a functioning office in the church anymore. I don't have the right nor responsibility to call myself an apostle, and neither do you, neither is your pastor or whatever. Um, the uniqueness of that is to, uh, of the apostle with that authority, is the power to do the kinds of miracles Jesus did and to preach the word that Jesus did of the liberating nature of the gospel. As the scriptures are completed, which would be by 95 AD is the last scripture written, it's Revelation, the canon is closed. And as that generation of apostles passes from the scene, that apostolic authority to do messianic miracles uh, ends because it's completed. Now the word, the written, canonical, complete, total word all about Jesus and fulfilling all the prophets is completed. And that becomes our primary authority. 
So yeah, the answer to your question is yes. Thank you. And did they all have the, the uh, ability to perform miracles, all, all of the apostles? I, I, I think so. And many of them are documented for us, Philip and Peter and John and Paul and so on. But the, the, we are all disciples. Right? Well, we and that's right. We are the disciples of Christ, and that's a, a title that fits uh, with with uh, with you if you could put your faith in Christ. Uh, that, that's right. But not an apostle. Right. We do not speak of the apostle Woody, <laughs> with the apostolic authority of Paul. That doesn't. Jim, we, we approach this, but we, we haven't addressed it, and that is, this person was, was for all practical purposes dead, as we might say today. But and, and you can conjecture on that. But why do we pray for people today then who are sick? Can you make a discerning comment between those two? This well, yeah. I mean this. Um, again, the, the power to resuscitate life is a messianic power. Jesus did that, and, and, and so on. Um, but the, so I, I mean, I'm separating the idea of physical illness from physical death. I mean, and so on. But um, the the authority of God over disease and over debilitation is clear. But um, I think it's appropriate for us when it comes to anything in life to pray that God's will would be done, that if it's pleasing to him, he would bring healing, either through medicine, through doctor, or whatever it is, or an instantaneous, miraculous. I mean, I know in my life, in my ministry over the years, I know of three or four incredible, miraculous things God did in a person's body. But I can also say that that's not the norm. And that, and the, the, and this is a bunny trial. I'm not sure I want to go any any further into it. But you, you have to trust. If you pray, your your prayer is you pray in the name of Jesus, meaning that, in accordance with His will and His purposes. But you're asking Him, in in dependence on Him, that His will be done. And we're asking if it pleases you. That's often how I pray that you would bring healing to this person. Um. One of the guys in our church, he's an elder, uh, he's a young engineer, really sharp guy, and his uh, first child, uh, they, they knew that their child had a severe heart condition, that as soon as she was born, she would have to have heart surgery immediately or she wouldn't survive. And so uh, Chris and Megan, uh, a group of us, we started praying and just asking that the Lord would either heal uh, her or make it not necessary to have that surgery if it's pleasing to him, to, to the Lord. And when she was born, there was no heart condition. Absolutely no heart condition. Amen. Now, you know, that, but the, the, for reasons that only God knows, he chose to do that. It wasn't that our prayers were any more efficacious than anybody else praying for healing or the Lord's favor in a in a in a difficult situation. Uh, so I mean, you can't make the judgment. Well, the people that aren't healed don't have enough faith, but you guys had enough faith. I'd, that's a ludicrous judgment to make. I mean, it's, it's just you're putting guilt on somebody that is absolutely not deserved. 
Your, your prayers are always aligning with the will of God and accepting whatever that will is. You know, we have another uh, couple in our church. Um, he's a YFC uh, guy. He's really up in that organization. She had, she, this is her second bout with cancer. She's going to die. I mean, she really, it's all over her body. It's in her liver. It's in her spine. It's in her pancreas. But, I mean, she's like 35 years old. They have three children. And we've been praying now for uh, quite a few months. Um, so, you know, you, you scratch your head and you say, you know, Lord, why did you hear little Megan and Chris baby, but Chris, you're not. You're never going to get a satisfactory answer to that question. It, it's impossible to get that answer where well, you're satisfied, okay. But from eternity, uh, in eternity, I think we might understand, but from eternity's perspective, um, God has a purpose for this and will work this out. And that's why I've often taught on the will of God. There are three dimensions to God's will. His sovereign will, his moral, ethical will, and his individual will in the non-moral areas of life. And the only acceptable response to God's sovereign will is acceptance and obedience, submission to it. Because you can't, we're not God and we can't figure out how everything fits again, why he's allowing and permitting these things to occur in some people's lives and not in others. You, you cannot get a satisfactory answer. And to heap guilt on somebody, you don't have enough faith. That's why your baby isn't being healed or your wife isn't. Or that's, that's a very unfair thing to do for someone. Can I move on? <clears throat> Verse 13. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Asos. Now, you just let your eye, if you're interested, let your eye go down along the coast. They're headed farther south along the Ionian coast, along the coast of what today would be western Turkey. <coughs> Intending to take Paul aboard there, for he had arranged, including himself, to go by land. And when he met us at Asos, you're continuing to go down along the coast, we took on board and went to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we came to the following day to Chios, Next day we touched at Samos. I'm again just letting your eye go along the coast. And the day after that we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost, which from where he is now, that's five weeks. So he's five weeks to get to Jerusalem. And he doesn't want to stop in Ephesus because he knows there's going to be too many bunny trails, too many questions, too many people asking him things like you do here in this class, which will slow him up. I'm just kidding. And so he decides to bypass Ephesus. And so he's at Miletus. And again, if you look, if you're following the map, you can see that's just a little bit south. It's right along the coast. So he's at Miletus. But there he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, the elders of the church at Ephesus. What does that tell you? What conclusions can we reach from that? He was still invested in the church in Ephesus? Yeah, he's still really interested in the church at Ephesus. I mean, these people mean a lot to him. That he calls the the Greek word there is presbuteri. What word do we get from that? Presbyterian. 
I mean, don't relate modern Presbyterian. It's just, that's where the word comes. But if he's calling for the elders, what does that tell us about the church at Ephesus? It's established. It's organized. Because remember, the New Testament talks about the church in two ways. The church is talked about in two ways. First, the church as an organism. And the the metaphor Paul uses for that is it's the body of Christ. And that, that that knows no bounds. Uh, the church as organism, the body of Christ, wherever you are, and you see a fellow Christian, that person, you, you're both in the universal, organic body of Christ, the church. But the church is also organization. There's an organization to it, with a structure, and with leaders. And so when all this, it's really, it's really amazing, we skip over it so quickly. But when you read a verse like that, that tells us that the church at Ephesus is becoming quite well organized, which means it's presumably grown. I have no idea how many, but it's presumably grown. It's got structure. It's got leaders. And it's, it's functioning as a local organization or a local organizational uh, uh, part of the living body of Christ. I mean, that's a neat way to think about the church. I mean, I've traveled in most continents of the world and almost always was on a, you know, some kind of ministry. And as soon as you get off the plane and you're with other Christians speaking other languages, all of a sudden you have an instant kinship, an instant fellowship, never met these people before, we'll never see them again until we get to heaven, but instantly have a lot of camaraderie. Why? Because you're all part of the same organism. And you can talk about the same things, talk about the same Bible, talk about the same Jesus, all of that stuff. That's what's really fantastic about the church. But the church's organization is then it, you're organizing, you're giving structure, and you're dealing with all the messy issues of people's lives. Because the local church is just a messy thing. I mean, I'm on staff at a church now. I mean, it's just, I mean, it's wonderful, it's fantastic. You see people growing and transforming, but you're also you're participating in all their struggles and all their difficulties and all the baggage they're bringing and, and it's just but that's okay a lot of Paul's messages are about the mess exactly he's correcting the mess he's dealing with the mess because that's you have people who came to know Christ they're bringing all their baggage all their sin all their habits and they're now being transformed but it's, everybody's in the same boat and it's just and so it's just a fantastic fantastic thing that Paul wants to meet with these leaders. Now, the reason I want to spend some time on this and, um, is between here and verse 35, we learn a lot about how Paul wants us to look at this local organization, what it's supposed to be doing, who are the leaders, And what's the best metaphor to refer to the spiritual leaders? So let's get started. You yourself, this is Paul now speaking to the presbyteri of the Ephesian church. You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility, with tears, with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. You just go back to previous chapters, you know that's true. 
how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, teaching you in public from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. What's he doing there? Reinforcing his teaching. Reinforcing his teaching and, and his, his purpose. His credibility. His credibility. I think he's doing something else too. Well, I mean, they already have that. I mean, but th- what he's doing, I think, is he's setting himself up and reminding them, I'm kind of a model. And I want you to mimic what I do. He will say in 1 Corinthians 11, mimic me. Mimic what I do. I'm, I'm using the uh, Greek word, but follow my example. And so what he's trying to do is he's setting up, here's my threefold ministry. What did he do? I declared to you everything that was profitable, what's edifying, what builds you up. I taught you. And the, the Greek word didaskale, that means teaching the doctrine of the church. And testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Which is the gospel and the resulting life that comes. I mean, it's just, it's, it's really quite important, the language and the way he's doing this. What I did with you for that roughly three-year period, I want you to continue to do. Declare, teach, and testify. That's your job. The presbyteri of Ephesus are the spiritual leaders of that young church. Paul says in the next verse, I'm going back to Jerusalem. You got to keep doing this. Declaring, teaching, testifying. Because that is the only way the church grows. Both through evangelism, more people come to know the Savior, and through the growth and maturity of believers. That's the only way it's going to happen. And so he says, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies me that in every city, imprisonment and afflictions await me. (laughs) Would you keep going if the Holy Spirit said, I'm sending you to this area. And by the way, imprisonment and afflictions are going to await you. I think I'd have resigned. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That sums up his ministry. Testify to the grace of God. Did you see that little phrase? To finish my course. Bob Buford has written some really good books on leadership and so on. His last book, he's with the Lord now, but his last book was called Finishing Well. It's a great book. And in a way, that's kind of what Paul is saying. I want to finish well. I'm old. I'm tired. This is Paul. Uh, I mean, he's in his 60s by this time. And, I mean, it's just all that he's been through. And, you know, it's been a very difficult ministry because of this pushback and resistance. 
He said, I want to finish. I want to finish testifying to the gospel of the grace of God. That's a great testimony. I hope every, you know, not everybody here is as old as I am. I, I think I'm the oldest man in the room. But you have young guys like Joel and, and Glenn and these guys. Those of you who are middle-aged and those of you who are a little older, I don't know about your passion. My passion is I want to finish well. I don't want to stumble. I don't want to fall. I don't want to hurt the gospel. I don't want to hurt the Lord Jesus. I want to finish well. That's Paul's passion here. That's a great perspective to have about your life. Lord, help me to finish well. I don't want to stumble. I don't want to fall. I want to shame the gospel. And so that's a, that's a tremendous goal to have, a purposeful driven goal for our lives, regardless of our age. So, Joe, you're so much younger than I am, but finish well. Your dad and I talked about that once. Not you, about finishing well, I mean. Now, notice what else he does. Verse 25, now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. And that's probably true. Did you notice again, he he did this in, in last week we talked about that. He mentions again the kingdom. He mentioned in the previous verse the gospel. Now he mentions the kingdom. The rule of Jesus, as Jesus invaded Ephesus in that fantastic uh, illustration of spiritual warfare last week in Ephesus. And then he says something, which, verse 28, that almost catches us off guard. It almost seems harsh. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Now, he's alluding there, I think, to Ezekiel 33 in verse 1 through 6. It, there's a very similar statement. That's maybe where he's getting it. But what in the world does he mean by that? I'm innocent of your blood. What's, what's the Ezekiel reference again? 33, 1 through 6. Why would, why would he say that? What... what I mean, <laughs> that's almost harsh. You know, can you imagine if I would say this to you? Well, I've now been teaching, so I'm innocent of the blood of you <laughs> before God. I mean, you, you'd look at me and say, boy, what a strange way to say that. He's suggesting that they're going to have eternal life. He's telling them goodbye. Yeah. Farewell. Yeah, it is. That's right. This is part of his farewell, the last things he wants to say to them. Any other, I mean, when he says it, that what is he really saying to them? I'm innocent of the blood of all of you. I'm not going to die. No, I think it's... You've heard the gospel. You know what it is. I've declared it clearly. And you have to respond. That's your responsibility. Okay, in my declaring, my teaching, and my testifying, I have done what the Lord wanted me to do. There's nothing more for me to do. So your response in all of these different categories is up to you. It's, it's, and this is how it's used in Ezekiel 33. 
It's fostering the strong sense of accountability when it comes to the response. If we're, if we're faithful in doing what God is, wants us to do, it is up to God to bring about the results. I've done what God wants me to do. Now the results are up to him, and it's, you're, you're the one that's accountable. You will be accountable. And I mean, it's, again, it's, it's, it sounds so harsh, but assuming, and I, I think that's probably true, assuming they had an understanding of Old Testament and so on, they probably wouldn't understand completely what he was saying. But, you know, I, if your pastor would say this to you on Sunday morning, you would probably say to the chairman of the board, we need a new pastor. He's being <laughs> way too confrontational from the pulpit. We don't like the language like that. But anyway. so, we, tell our, we tell our kids the same thing at a certain point. You know, it's how you talk to your children. <laughs> I'm innocent of the blood of all of you. you know. No, I don't think we ever had that conversation. <laughs> but um, I, I think it's our job, and I can address this as, as men, fathers, and maybe grandfathers, to be true to the testimony that's within us. And if we do that, I think, like Paul says, I've done my job. It's up to you. And when he says the whole counsel of God, that is a great phrase. That is a great phrase. What does it mean? I didn't leave anything out. I didn't hold back anything. I explained God as the creator. I explained God as the redeemer. I explained God as the sustainer. And sanctifier. I explained God as the one who promised to come back and set up his kingdom. I explained it all to you. I didn't hold anything back. <clears throat> it is encouragement, absolutely. And that's what comes up in the next verse. But it's we 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 have and I I totally agree. We have the we have the tendency to read verse twenty seven as harsh. It isn't harsh. I've done what the Lord wanted me to do. Now we get into verse 28, 29, 30. Try to pay careful attention to this. This is a wonderful view of how God looks at pastoral leadership. Pay careful attention to yourselves, to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to take care of the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men twisting things to draw away the disciples after them. Now, there's a lot in here that I'd like to talk about if it's all right with you. Actually, even if it isn't all right with you, I'm still going to talk about it. Paul is, as one or two of you already said, Paul is going to leave them. He's going to Jerusalem. Uh, he knows he's facing harsh time. Uh, maybe he even understood he would more than likely be arrested. But the point is, he says, I'm never going to see you again. But I want to review with you what I've done with you. I've taught you the whole counsel of God, declaring teaching and testifying. Now I'm leaving. It's your responsibility. You are the spiritual leaders of the church. 
And what did he call what did he call the local church in Ephesus? Twice he uses that metaphor. The flock. What animals gather together in a herd called a flock? Sheep. Sheep. So the idea here is you guys have the responsibility over the flock, the sheep. And he says to them, you are, and he uses two words, here's your role. Here's your role. You're the presbyteri, and you are the episcopoi. They're the two words that he uses there to describe their leadership role. That's elders. That's overseers. That's positions of spiritual responsibility. You have the responsibility over the flock. But he says to them, that responsibility of being a presbyteroi and episcopoi is to care for the church of God. And that word care for the church of God is to pastor, shepherd. That fits with the flock. Now, in your church, your pastor, this is how you should look at your pastor. He is your, now there are offices that fit this, but you are to look at him as a shepherd to nurture, to encourage, to edify, to teach you, the sheep, the flock. And that's why we brought that word into, and typically we we talk about the, the chief leader, if you want to call it that in our church, it's the pastor. It comes from this passage, just where it starts. That the, the leader of the church, they're like pastors, caring for and shepherding and nurturing the flock of sheep. And honestly, when you really think through that, that's not a compliment about us. Because sheep, sheep, I don't know. I mean, I only know about sheep because I have a good friend who's a, a herd sheep way out in western uh, part of the country. And, I mean, he would just say to me, he gave me a book by Philip Keller. When you read about sheep, they are absolutely the dumbest animals God has ever created. They are really dumb animals. And they'll follow one sheep, goes to the edge of a cliff, and jumps over. They'll all do the same thing. And it's, you see, you're constantly having to protect them and not only, not only put them in special pens, but you have to watch why they have special dogs that try to hurt them because sheep are so stupid and so dumb, and if they get on their back for some reason, they can't get back up again. And so to call us the flock of sheep, it's not paying a real compliment to you and to me. So the responsibility of the Ephesian presbyteri and episcopoi is to shepherd the flock. And he tells you two reasons. Did you see those? There are two reasons for this. And you see the first reason is in verse 29. Because when I leave you, fierce wolves will come in among you. Now that fits because 
you know, I mean, even today, you know, like mountain lions and wolves and so on, and, and they'll, 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 they are relentless in going after sheep because they're so dumb. And so Paul's saying, you guys have to take this responsibility seriously because when I leave, fierce wolves are going to come. And then the second reason is verse 30, among yourselves are going to be people who are going to teach twisted things. So an external threat and an internal threat. And who is to meet that threat? The pastor. So, I want you to go back with me to the previous paragraph. What did Paul say he did? I declared, I taught, and I testified. That's what he wants them to do. If they're going to guard the flock from the fierce wolves and from the eternal, internal challenges, you have to know the truth, you have to be convinced of the truth, and you have to testify to the truth. So what should the primary function of a pastor be? Teach the word of God to the flock. Because if you're not teaching the word of God to the flock and helping them to develop a holistic understanding of God, who he is, a holistic understanding of yourself and who you are, holistic understanding of salvation, and all that's a part of that, the fierce wolves will come in and ravage the flock. And heretical teachers inside will start teaching error. And if people aren't well taught, they'll never recognize error. They'll just, like dumb sheep, follow the error-laden heretic over the cliff. That's, that's a mean way to put it. But Paul is, this is a fantastic passage of Scripture. Because here's Paul, he's never going to see these guys again. He didn't want to get involved in the church at Ephesus, so he's down along the coast, calls him down, look, it's the last time I'm going to see you, but here's what I want you to do. Because he spent three years with these people. Here's what I want you to do. And this is a fantastic, I've used this when I preached ordination sermons. This is your responsibility now. You're going to take this ordination, you take this seriously, and you better make sure, I wouldn't say it this way, but you better make sure you are doing these things because you're not doing the job. Don't take the ordination if you're not going to do this. Um, so, yeah, go ahead. So, culturally, how literate were the sheep? Was that an element of it, where they didn't have the book in front of them? They didn't have... Certainly not the Bible, that's right. So, was, was that part of that? You look at the medieval times and the reason that the priests were... The teaching way they were teaching, a lot of it was oral. It wasn't written. Right? Yeah. Is that part of that? I think so. I mean that uh, that is that that is absolutely true in terms of this culture in the early part of the first century. Um, people had access to books, scroll codices, that kind of thing. But usually they didn't own them personally. They'd go to libraries, and there really were libraries in most of these cities. Ephesus had the great library. That's, we still see the ruins of that today. But for you, as a, as a new believer, gathering together in the church to hear the Word of God read and hear it exposited, hear it taught, that's the only place you're going to be exposed to it. 
And so you guys who are in leader of that church, you really have to take a lot of responsibility. Reading the word of God, declaring the truth, teaching the word of God to these people. Because if they don't hear from you, they're not going to hear anywhere else. And so I mean, it's a tremendous... Now for you and me today, even though we have access to all these resources on our phones, etc., it's still imperative that the pastor of the church teach, 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 teach. The job of a pastor is not make you feel good. The job of the pastor is to challenge you with the word of God, to bring your life into conformity with it, and to grow in your dependence on the Lord. Um, this, uh, my mentor one time said to me, and it's really hard to think about this, but your job, if people leave your church every Sunday feeling really, really good about themselves, you're not doing a very good job. They should leave the church having met God and heard his word and being challenged. And that, that's, I mean, although he, he meant that somewhat humorously, really he didn't. It's really true. It's, it's a tremendous challenge. And uh, it, the only way that occurs is if not reading from Oprah Winfrey's newest book, but reading from the word of God. It is the word of God that the Holy Spirit uses to bring conviction and change and transformation. Within the church as a congregation, um, and you have different levels of uh, seasoned and, and, and unseasoned uh, Christians, some new coming to know Christ, and others who have been in that relationship for a number of years. <coughs> What what is the as from a pastoral point of view? What is the uh, desire you think of the Lord in terms of the congregation, individuals <coughs> relating to one another, and the sharing of the gospel and testifying to what has occurred during the week? Things that would be an encouragement within the biblical sense of that word to other believers that attend that church? Whew, there's a lot in your question there. Uh, uh, well, I mean, Fred, there's so many ways I can answer that question. I'm not quite sure what you're looking for, but I think it is important also when we're gathered together for worship and in fellowship is to continue to remind all members of the flock of the church, of the, the flock, is that we need one another and to encourage and foster that mutual nurturing and support and uh, edification and all that kind of stuff, that we, we, we really all need to be a part of that. You know, and there are lots of, and many churches, and I'm sure it's not true for some of your churches, it's true my church, you have small groups. Um, and those, if they're done right, now small groups, you have to really watch that. But I, I mean, I think it's a very positive development. But if you, if you look at the way the small group should function, you have some very clear goals you're all trying to achieve in your respective ways in which you gather. And there's some accountability with that. But it's all to nurture, to grow, to edify, to encourage. It's not just to sit around for an hour and a half and have coffee. I mean, it is really, and you got to make sure that, but if that occurs, that's fantastic. That's another expression of the flock being nurtured. 
And with that goes that mutual responsibility and, and, and accountability I have to help you. You know, Peter speaks of bearing one another's burdens. We're both sharing burdens and bearing burdens together. And in a large church, that's hard to do. So you, you, know, you kind of get into smaller groups where you can really encourage and foster that. But it, it, that, if that turns into social gathering, that is not the way it's supposed to work. I mean, it's just, all of that is just, that's why it's really a pastor who's really looking at all this stuff. It, you, got, you have a lot of irons in the fire. You really do. Can, can I just, I want to do one thing yet. Please look at the next verse. Verse 31. Therefore, what's it say? Be alert. Is that how your translation is? Yeah, be on your guard. Be on your guard. Be alert. Be on your guard. Why? Because of the fierce wolves and the heretics in your body. That's a strong way to put it. Be alert. You have got to identify this stuff. Because remember that for three years, A.D. 52 to A.D. 55, he was with them. He spent the most time in all of his ministry with the Ephesian church. I did not cease her day or night to admonish everyone with tears. Now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So it's a tremendous charge he gives to these leaders. Let's look at those phrases. I'm, I'm, almost, I'm out of time. I'm frustrated by that, but I, I'm going to have to stop. But that phrase, the word of his grace, and the phrase, the inheritance among all who are sanctified. I want to talk about those next week. That's where I want to pick up. And here's your assignment. What does he mean by the word of his grace? What does that mean? And when he says the inheritance among all those who are sanctified, what inheritance? Is there an estate you don't know about? You're going to get an, a letter from an attorney that's going to document the inheritance? Is that what it is? It's not. In case you're wondering, it's not. So just think about that. That's your assignment. And if there's an assignment, that means there's accountability, which means I'm going to ask you a question. Take out a half a sheet of paper. No, I won't, please. If I say that, you won't come. So I'm just kidding. But just think about those things in the context of everything he's been saying. I don't know if you're as excited about this passage of Scripture as I was, but it's really an important insight into here in the early church, about A.D. 55. How's Paul looking at the church? How's Paul looking at these leaders? It's a, it's a great insight. So, All right? I'm going to pray, and we'll get out of here. Thank you, dear Lord. Thanks for this passage of Scripture that we just looked at, these last few verses, that... Uh, um, just give us a, really a tremendous insight into how we should look at the church and how we should look at pastoral leadership in the church. This cannot be taken lightly. It cannot be taken in, in, in a way that, for the very flippant attitude, this is a major responsibility. And I think uh, men and women who are involved in ministry at various levels in the church and Christian education, youth ministry, in all areas, um, the people who are involved in that, the Bible calls the flock. 
And our responsibility as shepherding the flock is, is an enormous responsibility. But it's one that keeps the protective hedge around everyone from the wolves ripping them apart from the outside and from false teaching and error creeping up in, within the church. Tremendous responsibility. And it's only faithful teaching of the Word of God, faithful testimony to the work of God, and declaring the whole counsel of God that those things can be guarded and protected. These guys are members of a flock. They're not my flock. This isn't a church. But I want to have that responsibility willingly to teach them the Word of God, allow the results to be in your hands, but to declare to them the whole counsel of God, that they can continue to experience the transforming grace of the Lord Jesus Christ in their lives, to grow and to mature in dependence on you, to have the joy and faithful obedience of walking with you. Thank you, Jesus, for going to the cross. Thank you, Father and Holy Spirit, for resurrecting him from the dead. The triumph has is, is, is been achieved. Death's been dealt with. The penalty's been paid. Now we can enjoy the fullness of your grace day by day by day. Dismiss us with your blessing, and we represent you well in all we do and say. In Christ's name, amen.